the challenge, the opportunity to connect. The 1960s, a time of imagination and change, a time of anger and fear. The 1960s, a program called Challenge. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Looked at our connections, our divisions, through the lens of faith. Nearly 60 years later, during these challenging times, we'll take a new look at our divisions, our connections, in a new program called Challenge 2.0. In last week's program, we examined the damage wrought by colonialism, the exploitation of one people by another for profit and for power. Some historians point to colonialism and the exploitation that was a part of it as the springboard for capitalism. Yet some faith and political leaders suggest that religion and capitalism are inseparable. That assertion, then, is the subject of this edition of Challenge 2.0. So once again, in this program, we are fortunate to be joined by two people that are deeply cognizant of and uh, able to unpack this whole issue of colonialism and not only the effect it's had on past history, but also the effect that it's continuing to have on each of us today. So I would like to welcome first Reverend Rachel Tabor Hamilton, who is the rector of Trinity Episcopal Church in Everett and the vice president, newly elected, I believe, of the House of Deputies of the Episcopal Church. Rachel, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. And Pastor Terry Kylo, who I know very well, he's the executive director of Paths to Understanding. And uh, that is the organization that underwrites and supports this program and on which I'm proud to serve on the board. And I should mention that, uh, Rachel, you're also on the board of uh, Paths to Understanding as well. But Terry, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Jeff. And thank you for all you do, both on the board and through your, your leadership through Challenge 2.0. Well, we see the need for all of that and really appreciate your leadership on that as well, Terry, with some exciting things that we'll not discuss in this program, but uh, some important initiatives that will be part of a program later on. Uh, as we look at colonialism and extend that, uh, a fundamental part of colonialism is the pursuit of economic gain and also power. How does that square with the origins of what we often refer to as the major Abrahamic religions, Christianity, Judaism, and Islam? Is there a fit there uh, legitimately, or was it something that was cobbled together? You know, something I've, I've learned recently, Jeff, uh, from talking to a, a scholar of Mesopotamian traditions, is that, you know, the Mesopotamian societies, uh, the Egyptian societies, had really beautiful traditions. But what I've learned is it doesn't take much to take a beautiful tradition, twist the knobs on it, manipulate it just a little bit so that it can serve to uh, support and encourage unjust systems. And so Judaism, Christianity, and Islam in many ways uh, were, were begun in response to, uh, to beautiful traditions that had been twisted to support an unjust status quo in which there was a, a higher a, an economic system that benefited the very few at the top, that exploited people who didn't have many resources, that were willing to go and capture people from different different lands, from different cultures, and enslave them. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, if we think back to uh, to Genesis, you know, chapter one, where where the story says, uh, and they were made in the image of God. And God gave them the responsibility to care for each other in the earth. Well, that story was told 
when the people of Israel were in a place called Babylon and had been enslaved and had had their territory taken from them at home. And if we think about Jesus, Jesus' entire ministry um, was about responding to the colonization of the Roman Empire, the imposition of their culture and their values. And he was one of many Jewish people attempting to remind them of what their deep values were. So one can make a very powerful case that the Judaism, Christianity, and later Islam were all in part a response to a system of economics and to a kind of distortion of historic traditions mm -hmm. uh, that were blessing the status quo. And, and as I said last time, it's just a great grief that, uh, that to find that, that a tradition begun to help us re-envision how to be human and not have to live like that uh, has sometimes been used and often used mm -hmm. to justify another system of inequality. Rachel, I might ask for your perspective on that, and also uh, from your perspective as a faith leader, how are you working and others within your faith tradition to change that, to change that narrative and to highlight how this is really not based on Christian faith? Right. Our, our scriptural traditions are those uh, really foundational stories that have the power to gather diverse peoples around them and the telling of them. The, they can be kind of like a rock, right? A rock that keeps us grounded, a rock that can be that font of water that gives life to all of us and around which we gather with thanksgiving. They can also be used in a way to create great devastation when we pick them up and throw them and use them as a um, auspice for uh, division and for justifying division and justifying harm to one another. So I think the power in story is so well known that scripture itself says they have so much power that God had to speak to make creation. And the idea, though, that God is continuing to make creation and continuing to put a word in our hearts is a tremendous transformative power of resurrection to me, which is at the heart of our, our story, <laughs> that, that we can continue to be transformed by the story. We can continue to be part of it. We have legacy and we have future to make. Where we're going with this, I think in the progressive uh, aspects of all of the Abrahamic traditions, I think we recognize how there has been a misuse, uh, a weaponization of our scriptural stories of our belief systems to justify and legitimate great harm and division in all of the Abrahamic faiths. And there's a recognition in the other aspect, in the other line of tradition that says that is not how our scripture stories should be used, our faith should be used. And more and more, I think the, the sort of what gets called the progressive uh, uh, manifestation of those things is finding its voice because we are saying those extreme positions do not represent the heart of our faith tradition not represent the core story, which is love, which is gathering together as diverse peoples. We each in our traditions have that story and the importance of the hospitality to the stranger and the importance of helping people we don't know <laughs> and, and this challenge to transform the human heart so we can transform the world. When we talk about uh, the exercise of power or seeking of power, as we've seen with colonialism, and as we talk about various dialogue, it inevitably 
uh, leads to economic power. And we've seen in political dialogue, we've seen in talk show uh, programs, that there is a conflation of Christianity with capitalism. And I guess I would just begin by asking what your reaction is when you hear that. One of the things that I think is also a foundational mythos to Western civilization and its history, that even goes back before that 15th century doctrine of discovery, is grounded in even the Greek philosophy of Aristotle that created a scala, this mechanism that says there is people of lower orders and things of lower orders and then a hierarchy to the best. The best are human beings, <laughs> and there are certain kinds of human beings. It's those, the Greeks and the Romans, et cetera. And that idea of supremacy, of Scala, that there's a scale to nature, um, continues to inform what's happening now through extractive industries is a perfect example. The early colonizers just did not even see on that scale that indigenous people, that trees, that water, um, you know, had any value other than what they could sell it for. <laughs> that they weren't intrinsically valued. And, and so the extractive industries today do exactly the same thing. They just see it as stuff that they can use, that the privileged, economically privileged, <laughs> get to use uh, for their own benefit. And that somehow within capitalism, that idea of Scala, it continues to be ensconced as the way that we should behave through individualism and self-success, when actually that's complete mythology the success of the backs of those who've been exploited. So what's what's happened, you know, is that um, the idea of the good, of what it means to be a human, has become reduced to merely, well, basically greed, right? And that that uh, that that's the real story. And you talk to a lot of people, and they'll about the Christian tradition or the Jewish tradition or multi multi-faith work let's say well all that's very nice but what really matters is how much you produce how much you consume mm -hmm. i was talking with uh with uh father william tracy the, the one of the founders of past to understanding and i said and he's a, nearly 103 at the time and i said you know father bill you know you're you're almost 103 what is life about mm -hmm. right what does it mean to be human and he said well it means to be great, be grat have gratitude for the life that we have, uh, not to hurt people, and to try to try to help make a better world. Mm -hmm. Well, interestingly enough, I was talking to an indigenous elder uh, a few months ago, and and I asked him. I said, "Well, Jay, you know, what is life about?" And he said, "Well, when the Creator sends a spirit to come and become a, a human being." You know, um, the, the creator says, help people, enjoy life, and don't hurt anybody. Well, that's what it means to be human. And to reduce that into consumption and production and valuing ourselves based on all that and valuing or devaluing them based on that is such a deep misunderstanding. That, that words almost fail me at this moment to talk about how short that falls of the beauty of human life and the beauty of our human neighbors and our animal neighbors and, our, and the creation. It is interesting that we are beginning to see some 
alternative narrative coming out, and I'm thinking that's very powerful. Uh, I'm thinking of the popular book uh, Braiding Sweetgrass uh, by Robin Kimmerer from indigenous tradition in terms of a scientist that's also looking at how do we relate to this properly, and then Suzanne Simard up in uh, British Columbia uh, in terms of saying there's another way to look at this and that's much more productive for us. When we talk about capitalism and the superiority of personal property rights, what are those individuals really saying in your mind? I'll say briefly that I think it really says that they feel entitled to pay. Mm -hmm. And then they also approach it with a certain social pathology of a total lack of empathy, mm -hmm. which is almost anti-Good Samaritan. <laughs> it's it's anti-relational. Uh, it is divisional. It's um, a way to to break the bonds that we seek together. Um, I, I totally agree with Rachel, because there are many people essentially today who are saying that to care for another, to recognize our connection to other human beings, uh, to respect the larger creation is weakness, that it, is, that, that it has no meaning, that it has no grounding, and that only themselves matter. I had a gentleman at, after a funeral tell me recently that, um, that Jesus was completely crazy when he said, love your neighbor. And I shared with him, well, you're, you're only getting half the sentence. It says, love your neighbor as you love yourself, which means to hold your own needs and the needs of your family, your own well-being, in tension with the needs of the neighbors around you and the larger society. <laughs> because I said to him, if your neighborhood is burning, your house is going to burn too. And I said, it is incredibly naive what you are saying that we should only care about ourselves because we are in fact, actually, not just philosophically, not just in some Disneyland theology, but we are actually connected. And our tradition is trying to teach us to hold our needs and the needs of others' intention so that all of us together can create a kind of society in which everyone can thrive. He didn't know what to say to me. He, he literally had no words at that point. <laughs> I suspect you probably didn't. I hope you'll forgive me for jumping on something you said, and that was the uh, Disney version of that, and saying ultimately we think of the slogan, it's a small world, everyone, and it seems like we don't remember that often enough, uh, which leads us in turn to the issues that we've been talking about, the extraction economy, removal of natural resources, be it through mining, fossil fuels, et cetera, uh, and you mentioned this last week, but I'd like to return to that, Rachel, uh, and that is that this continues essentially the colonial domination of indigenous people that were here for not just centuries, but thousands of years before settlers came in from Europe. And I thank you. All the, all the issues we have around today around global warming and social justice and environmental justice are, are so closely intersected that when we start pulling on one string, we realize the relationality of it. And in some ways where I really believe that our issues around climate change are the result of a failure of theological relationship, you know, a theologically based relationship with one another and understanding that our relationship 
with one another in creation. And that for me works out in the examples of extractive industry. Um, there's so many ways that that has a ripple effect, including not only the exploitation of the resource itself, but examples of creating man camps. Whenever an oil field was opened up or a fracking field was opened up, there's suddenly this huge incursion of hundreds, if not thousands, of men seeking work who set up these temporary camps. And we know for a fact, in both in Canada and the US, wherever these man camps exist, there's a secondary phenomenon of murdered and missing Indigenous women. And there's also that reality in our tribal systems here in Washington State, that wherever we have tribal groups and communities, that women become highly victimized. And the colonialism of that is when you remove women from the equation, you are hobbling, if not decimating, the culture's ability to maintain its traditions through its women and, and continue as, as a tribal strain. Um, so we have that among the Yakima is the phenomenon. We have it across our state. We have it across our nation in Canada. And it's something that we need to understand as a communal impact of one. Yeah, I mean, that is such a horrific phenomena that um, you know, we all need to learn and, and, and do more uh, to try to support those communities and stop this terrible practice. The other assumption underneath this, Jeff, I think is, is a belief I mean, an almost a almost a religious belief in a way, if one could use that term, in unlimited eternal growth economically. And the fact is, is that we are limited human beings. We have a planet with finite resources, and we have future generations that will need to live on this planet. And it seems like much of this extraction is built on the idea that we can have unlimited economic growth forever and ever, and that it will have no consequences. And it is having consequences that we are feeling today, we've been feeling for decades now, and that are going to continue to come home uh, to roost and to challenge uh, not only future generations, but ours as well. And that belief in unlimited growth, that, that economic growth is, is the ultimate good. Mm -hmm. Well, and the ultimate centering of the privileged white guy is the right. idea that they could build a rocket and go someplace else. Yeah. We need a fundamental shift in ideology from centering, you know, the white privileged uh, person and centering or, or the privileged person at all, or humanity is privileged in creation. We have to get that off the board and center the earth. Mm -hmm. This what we need as foundational to who we are. I guess one question is, is these critiques, these understandings of the consequences are not new. Why does this pattern persist in your minds? I, I think it's encoded in the story. And one of the reasons that we spoke about last week of wanting to, you know, literally shut down what books people can have access to, mm -hmm. um, the, the critique of race theory, critical race theory, it is a fear of going beyond the pages of the story of the privileged dominant culture. Mm -hmm. it, it puts at risk a historical identity that they very much want to perpetuate because it's so foundational to who they are and how they are. Mm -hmm. And it will require a huge emotional mental shift of identity 
And I get that. I have compassion for that. I have struggled in, as I've said last week, in my own heritage. And, but, and healing in our relationships, in our nation, and in our world can only happen when we do that difficult, learn difficult dialogue and open the story. I think of theology as the practice. It's not really just conversation about God or whatever. It's the practice of critiquing the major story or the worldview or the narrative that we're living in. And we can see that the narrative that we're living in is not working. Mm -hmm. uh, and But it's really hard for human beings once we've spent so much of our life energy in one. Well, we wonder what will happen if, if we're able to change that, mm -hmm. right? Um, but all major traditions encourage us to do just that, recognizing the, that our inherent value as human beings, the inherent value of the earth and of each other is so real uh, that we're so grounded in that inherent dignity that we can go ahead and change because it's not our worldview or our narrative or even our history that justifies us. As a Christian, as a Lutheran Christian, we believe it isn't uh, our history that justifies us. It's nothing but the free gift of the creator of God's love and compassion for us. <laughs> and I think in the midst of this conversation, just whatever tradition people have, just take a deep breath and remember your value <laughs> and that it's okay to change. I've just come off this huge general convention of the Episcopal Church where we create the polity of the church. And Jeff asked earlier about where do we see the narrative shifting, mm -hmm. changing in our polity. We passed multiple resolutions um, opening up our sense of understanding of diversity among human beings. We passed multiple resolutions around our environmental care, everything from carbon offset commitments, et cetera, you know, to uh, diversifying in how we support uh, innovative cultural agricultural practices. Mm -hmm. I, I, and I see the church moving away from its sense of being a weapon of war and colonialism to being one that's committed to the healing of the planet and the healing of peoples. The Lutheran Church recently passed here a resolution encouraging congregations to give land back to indigenous communities. If the if the church you know is thinking about selling it, don't sell it, just give it back to the local or at least offer it to local indigenous communities, mm -hmm. you know, to to honor and, and as a as a beginning of a kind of honest relationship with them. When we talk and we're sort of moving toward uh, individual decisions, individual in terms of persons or communities, uh, I think that moves us toward the issue of consumerism that has become so dominant uh, in this society. And I guess, do you think that has become a dominant influence? Do you think that uh, that has been responsible in part for the weakening of religious affiliations and I guess how does that erode what we profess to be or are as individuals? Uh, the, this phenomenon of people kind of walking into church and sort of seeing it as one more thing to consume, right? Mm -hmm. For certain benefits and perks and, you know, things that they need, it's going to satisfy their needs or their family. And I don't necessarily, you know, have, <laughs> I don't necessarily want to say that's awful or horrible, they're horrible people. They're not. 
but I think there's an and that they're forgetting in the equation. Mm-hmm. It's just simply consumerism. Consumerism is all self-centered. <laughs> and, and we have to remember this Christian story, the Jesus narrative is about creating community and serving others. Mm-hmm. <laughs> just about us, right? We have to remember that story and say, oh, we're called to be here because we're called to go out there <laughs> and we're called to help one another. So I think that there's just a remindfulness in our own traditions. And what is our story? It's not just self-satisfaction. Yeah, I mean, I agree with Rachel that that many folk are, are expecting, you know, religious leaders of various traditions to be in the spiritual uh, product business, you know, and uh, and what they really want is for those communities, at least what many people want, mm-hmm. is to after they have gotten all the wealth that they want, to to ap- offer just a little bit of these spiritual services mm-hmm. to them, when in fact every single one of these, you know, ancient wisdom traditions is actually suggesting something very different. Uh, that that, consu- that that we're not not to consume those traditions on the side, in addition to, but to place the value of human life, the value of the creation, at the core of our existence. Well, this has been a very rich uh, discussion, and I think it just opens up what needs to be discussed in even greater detail. And I hope we'll have an opportunity to gather both of you uh, together again on challenge so that we can do that in uh, greater detail because it's uh, something that we need to continue to evolve in. uh, And I look forward to maybe being an agent of uh, doing that. So Rachel and Terry, thank you so much for joining us. And thank you all of you who have joined us on this edition of Challenge 2.0. And we hope you'll join us again next week. Thank you very much. If you've enjoyed this program, found our conversations to be informative, entertaining and thought-provoking and the vision inspiring of people from different backgrounds who can disagree without being disagreeable perhaps you might consider supporting our program with a contribution your support will not only help our program continue it will also support the broader efforts of past understanding our supporting parent nonprofit organization